This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. I'm Naveena Panasami, Executive Director of Development at RAND. I'm pleased to introduce tonight's speakers on the subject of police community relations in Los Angeles as part of our quarterly policy forum programs. Arif Ali Khan is the director for the Office of Constitutional Policing and Policy at the Los Angeles Police Department. Peter Biebring is the director of police practices for the ACLU of California. Brian Jackson is a senior physical scientist at the RAND Corporation and the author of Respect and Legitimacy, A Two-Way Street, Strengthening Trust Between Police and the Public in an Era of Increasing Transparency. Matthew Johnson is the president of the Los Angeles Police Commission, appointed by Mayor Eric Garcetti in 2015. Kate Mather is our moderator and is a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. We'd also like to make a special note of the Lensner Challenge Fund for Criminal Justice Research, launched with a gift from Terry Lensner. The goal of the Lensner Challenge Fund is to inform public dialogue on police community relations. Thanks to Terry's gift and others who meet his challenge, Rand will undertake research and analysis to better understand the conditions that give rise to tensions and to help inform effective police practices. If you'd like to learn more about participating in the Lensner Challenge, please contact us at giving at rand.org. And now, let's listen to the discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you all for being here. Um, It's nice to see a crowd this big engaged in learning more, discussing more about this topic. Um, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone in this room that police uh, and community relations have come under uh, big scrutiny in the last couple of years. It's been a topic that have, have entered our homes in ways that we might have not they might not have before. It's something that a lot of people are talking about nationwide, but also here in Los Angeles. So it's great to see so many people here tonight. Um, There's a couple of areas that we all want to hopefully discuss tonight, um, but I think one of the first uh, places we can start off um, is talk a little bit about policing and technology. Um, Body cameras have been a huge issue, um, have been a new technology that many departments across the country are exploring uh, the use of, and the LAPD is no different. Um, for those of you who don't know, the LAPD is on track to become the largest law enforcement agency in the country to put a body camera on every police officer. There are plans to buy about 7,000 cameras for officers. So I'd like to open up um, to whoever you know wants to take it first, and let's go over some of the pros of the technology And then um, I know, Peter, from our prior conversations, there have been some concerns the ACLU has raised. But maybe, RF or Matt, you can talk to us about why this has become a priority for the department and and what you hope it will bring to policing here in L.A. Sure. Um, Well, it's certainly um, something that I think most people think will be beneficial uh, to policing, accountability, transparency, um, I personally see a lot of benefits to it, um, and you can really go down the list. The early research shows that when you look at um, uh, the amount of use of force in departments that have, that have uh, cameras, when you look at the before and after, you're seeing a, a, an impact of there's less use of force. So it's having, a, it's having an impact on behavior on both parties. The person, everybody, when, when people are aware they're being filmed and someone is aware on both sides of the camera, it, uh, it's having a, a positive impact. Um, when you look at the number of complaints that we had, uh, discourteous complaints, biased complaints, in the last uh, three years from 2012 to 2014, there were about 2,000 um, biased complaints against the LAPD. None were sustained. Um, a large part of that is it's he said, she said. So in terms of uh, the, the level of transparency of now it's no longer a he said, she said uh, situation. You'll have that extra piece of information. You're going to have the audio of what both parties said. You're going to have some video. Um, and I think, first of all, I think you're going, you're going to see a lot of complaints go down just because people are going to be aware that there is this piece of evidence. It's not going to be my word against someone else's word. Um, I think it will modify the behavior by both parties when they know they're going to have to be answerable uh, to what is on that recording. 
Um, and I can also tell you that from uh, part of the responsibility of the uh, Los Angeles um, Police Commission is we adjudicate every categorical use of force case involving police officers. So that's any serious use of force like an officer-involved shooting, um, where a suspect requires hospitalization, things of that nature. And in the instances where we've had videotape versus the instances where we don't, it's just a lot clearer. It's, a, it's not always perfect. It's far from perfect. But that additional piece of evidence that we get to review as a part of uh, adjudicating these cases, to me, has probably been some of the most valuable um, evidence that we see. Uh, so when you, when you talk about things like uh, uh, accountability and transparency, and I know that you know, Peter and I have had a number of conversations about the transparency piece. Um, and I understand the, those issues, and I'll let, uh, I'll let Peter ex explain his point of view on those issues. It, at least in the city of LA, while the public is not seeing that video, because we, the LAPD views it as, um, as, as evidence um, and investigatory material, there are lots of um, layers of, of people that do have access to it beyond the, the police department. So the police department has access to it. The district attorney has access to it. The police commission has access to it. The inspector general, who is also independent and reports to the police commission, all have access to it. So there's a great deal of transparency that comes with that also. Let's, we'll, I'll bounce it to Peter since it kind of came up here in Matt's answer. Uh, for those in the audience who aren't aware, one of the big questions that's come uh, as more departments start to use uh, body cameras, one of the biggest questions is, well, who gets to see the footage? And uh, the Technology is so new that a lot of departments are, are kind of figuring out it out as they go along, not just within California, but beyond California. But Peter, um, can you explain to us some of um, your concerns and the ACLU's concerns? Like Matt said, the LAPD has opted not to make that footage accessible to the general public. So if an LAPD officer um, is involved in a shooting and it's captured on a body camera, as of right now, you're not going to see it on CNN the next day. So Peter, can you explain sure. your concerns with that? Um, but let me actually start by saying that I, I think that we, the ACLU, and a lot of uh, uh, community advocates started from a similar place of thinking that body cameras could potentially be uh, a very useful tool um, for exactly the reasons that Commissioner Johnson just said, that, that they would help promote transparency, help the public understand what was going on in critical incidents, um, and help have a conversation that's about facts and not about uh, ideological reactions. Um, that they would help accountability, that uh, when officers engaged in misconduct, they could be uh, held accountable and disciplined, and when they were accused wrongly of misconduct, that they could be quickly cleared, um, and that those two things together would help build trust between police and communities. Um, what has happened over the time that uh, body cameras have gone from a, a kind of a new concept to something that is rolling out at departments all across the country is that we've become very concerned about the way the policies uh, are going. Because look, at the end of the day, body cameras are a tool, and whether they're effective or not depends on how they're used. And uh, as Commissioner Johnson said, um, you know, the LAPD is not proposing to release the videos um, under any circumstances, uh, and that's uh, unless compelled to do so by a court. So not just on CNN the next day, obviously there's um, maybe some concern that videos might need to be withheld while witnesses are interviewed and the like. But even um, once a determination has been made as to whether an off a, a, a shooting is within policy, the public at the moment in LAPD doesn't get to see that footage. And look, that doesn't serve transparency. Transparency is not served if the public doesn't get to see the video. And for most of the public, um, you know, I, look, I certainly, as a person who's steeped in this policy world appreciate the layers of oversight at the LAPD, you know, the, the, the robust civilian oversight um, uh, in that department that's, you know, much more robust than at most departments. But for most of the community, it's just, it's all a black box, right? A shooting happens and they are told an investigation is underway and, uh, you know, we've decided, and some months later, we've decided that the shooting was in or out of policy, and there's a fairly detailed written summary, um, but they don't get to see the evidence. Um, and for the folks on the outside, the difference between um, we've looked at the evidence and the shooting was in policy, and we've looked at the evidence, and that evidence includes a video, and the shooting's in policy, is not really a big difference. And it's not one that increases transparency, and it's not one 
that increases public trust. And I'll actually, let me drop in another policy point that's been very troubling to us, um, which is that LAPD, um, uh, unlike many departments across California, has actually also adopted another policy feature that we think actually undermines the accountability piece, which is um, not only allowing but requiring officers who are involved in shootings to view the video before they make even an initial statement about what happened. Now, look, best investigative practice is not generally to take people who are involved in an incident that you're investigating and show them all the evidence that you have and then say, we'd like to hear your side of the story. Um, and that, look, for better or for worse, police officers who are involved in a shooting are under an investigation. And that's that kind of advantage of handing over the video to the officer to see before he or she makes a statement. And a video that the public actually never gets to see, and certainly <laughs> other witnesses who are uh, you know, civilian witnesses to shootings don't get to see before they make their statements. You know, it skews the investigation in favor of the officer. Um, should officers get to see the video at some point? Yeah, probably so, right? They should be required to give a statement, give their account of what happened, um, and then be able to view the video to offer uh, uh, an account of anything that they missed or um, got incorrect. I think the public does, people do understand that shootings are high-stress events and people may not remember them 100% accurately. Um, but the idea that you're giving officers this one-sided advantage that's not given to anyone else really undercuts, I think, the accountability uh, uh, that body cameras are supposed to provide. And so basically, uh, based on those two policy features of LAPD um, and the lack of, there's also a concern that, um, especially as technology evolves, that uh, body cameras will become general tools of surveillance um, and there aren't any real safeguards for that in LAPD's policy. We have actually gotten to a position where we have opposed the use of body cameras under LAPD's current policy, which is actually surprising to me. Uh, that is not where I thought we would end up uh, two years ago when this first started. RF, as the, as the department was, you know, taking the steps, you know, the process to put, to buy body cameras for the LAPD began several years ago before Ferguson, before kind of these high-profile incidents captured national attention. Um, you know, these are big issues that, that are still being kind of sorted out as, as the technology is used more, as more cameras are deployed. Um, you know, and with the LAPD being the largest agency to do this, a lot of eyes are on the LAPD as, as you guys complete this rollout moving forward. I, I guess I'd be curious to know, um, you know, as these questions are come up and thought about before, and then as the technology is implemented, you know, how does the LAPD kind of grapple with these topics as they come up? Give us, you know, as much of a behind-the-scenes glimpse as you can as to the thought you put to these issues. Sure. So cer certainly uh, in response to your question, I think what's happened, especially post-Ferguson, people tend to think that video technology and law enforcement is something new, and it really isn't. Um, there are many departments in California who have been using video technology in their patrol cars for decades. Mm -hmm. LAPD was a little late to the game, uh, and in part was able to, be, and partly because the cost is pretty significant when you have uh, a large department, large deployment. But fortunately, uh, we were able to implement a program several years ago to put uh, uh, digital in-car video. So anytime a police officer is in pursuit or makes a car stop uh, or, or stops a pedestrian, they can activate the video. It has audio and video in it. Um, and those cars, about 300 cars, have had digital in-car video at LAPD for now about six and a half years. Um, in addition, that's now expanded to all of uh, basically downtown and, and uh, East LA. Uh, and I believe we're going live uh, this week in West Bureau, which is basically two, uh, three quarters of the city. Through that, we've had a lot of experiences with officer-involved shootings that are caught on video. But one thing I think that's often forgotten is that the advent of video and policing was not necessarily to create additional transparency, but was to collect evidence. It was to collect evidence of criminality and collect evidence of people who were driving drunk or getting into fights and also be used as a tool to hold police officers accountable when they, they commit a misconduct. That has been going on for a long time, it, which is one of the reasons why uh, the department went to looking at body-worn video as well. It was another method to be able to capture that evidence, but you didn't have to be 
in the street in front of a police car. You could do it in footbeats. You could do it inside a business or a home, et cetera. And, and that's why uh, one of uh, Commissioner Johnson's colleagues on, on the police commission, Steve Sobaroff, raised the money to do that and test it out, and we started doing that. We have about 1,000 cameras that are deployed right now uh, in officers and, and on officers, and we have a plan to get 7,700. But one of the things when we were developing the policy that was approved by the Los Angeles Police Commission, we looked at our experience. We looked at other cities. We looked at other places um, to see what their experience is. Now, we are at a sort of a, a stage where we're still learning a lot about how this works. We have 1,000 cameras out. That's more than any other police department in the, in, in the country. When we have 7,700 out, that will be more than probably any place in the world. Um, and a lot of what has been relied on is some good evidence about the benefits of it. There's a study that was done with the Rialto Police Department, I believe the University of Cambridge, that's often cited. Um, good study, very small department, uh, very different dynamics, uh, very different encounters. Uh, and, and there's a lot more investment going on, including in LAPD, to look at what we're doing. But the policy development has to take into consideration a number of factors. First and foremost, we are capturing evidence. Police officers are going out and capturing evidence of an investigative enforcement encounter. And the, one thing I want to mention, actually, when, when Matt was talking about the benefits of it, one of the big pieces that's lost about the huge benefit of video is the evidence that enables a prosecutor, and I was a federal prosecutor for 10 years, to use to either get a, a guilty plea or convict somebody of criminal conduct at trial. That is the majority of the use of video. Um, and that is of huge benefit to the community. It's of huge benefit to society that's often uh, mistaken. But we treat this as evidence, whether it's evidence of criminality by someone maybe in this room or evidence of misconduct by a police officer. Um, and that's how we treat all evidence. Now, uh, Peter and I have uh, sat on many panels and had many, <laughs> many discussions, so I know uh, a friend. And, and uh, so I just want to uh, couch a couple of things just to make sure everybody understands our policy. Um, we do not produce video except as required by the law. We comply with the law when it comes to video. We have the option, as we do with any evidence, almost any evidence, to waive the exemption to disclose it. But as a matter of policy, the LAPD has not done that, and we don't do that. Uh, we don't release whether it's good or whether it's bad. We don't release 911 calls. We don't release crime scene photos. We do not release pictures of autopsies. We do not release forensic tests. So it has always been the policy of the department not to do that. We have had six years of experience on digital in-car video. We have not released that, except as we have to under the law. Civil suits, a criminal prosecution, um, in some circumstances, subpoenas and other things. I'm not sure that is, you know, I understand the framing may be a little different from uh, uh, Peter and his colleagues, but we comply with the law. That's what <laughs> law enforcement officers, uh, agencies do. Um, when we show the video to the officer, and we can get into this in more detail, I don't want to dominate, um, we do not provide the officer all of the evidence in the case. They are entitled to watch their video that they activated with cameras that we have designed to provide their perspective of what occurred. They are allowed to do that because we recognize a couple of things. One, memory is deconstructive, reconstructive, and through a stressful experience, all of us often need to refresh our recollection of what happened because our purpose in an administrative investigation and interview is to find out what happened and what the reasons were. So that's a very important aspect of why we show it. The other part is just the reality that police officers also have to believe and trust that these are not devices that are simply just um, being given to them to catch them in an inconsistency. Because we have to rely on the police officers to use them. We have to rely on them to have faith in them. Um, and there will always be inconsistencies after that. If you ask me what did I say 10 seconds ago, I'm not sure I would give you the exact. And, and so that's a very important part of this because ultimately it's to try to find out what occurred and why and then make decisions from there. Right. We can talk a lot about body cameras. Uh, we could have our own uh, hour-long discussion about body cameras. But um, one of the big words that I heard all three of you say uh, was the T word, transparency. 
And I'm curious, uh, the push for um, more transparency in policing is not limited to uh, when police use technology. There's been a push across the country, but we also see it in California. Uh, the state attorney general's office is now requiring uh, local law enforcement agencies to report things like when officers use force or um, how many officers are, you know, other, other interactions that, that police have. Um, there's also a push in the state legislature to um, make some uh, records that are, as of now, withheld, like police disciplinary records, make those more publicly available. Um, Brian, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about um, kind of this effort to bring more transparency to policing, why people want that, and if there's a, if, are we at the right balance? Is, is there room, you know, do you think that balance will move uh, given the, the, the events that have gone on in the last couple of years? Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm generally a proponent of transparency and policing, mostly because when the data is released, it, it, it can take the air out of people talking past each other mm -hmm. about whether that's about an individual incident or whether it's about patterns of behavior. I mean, post-Ferguson, uh, you know, we had sort of the national discussion about the fact that there really wasn't good measures of, you know, sort of fatalities in encounters with police, injuries in encounters with police. And so as a result, we had members of the public and members of the media start to try to fill that void and collect data themselves. Um, and so then you get to a position where um, a, a law enforcement organization may not be releasing that information for good reasons, but will now be a sort of encountering sort of a public data set. And then rather than about arguing about sort of the policy, arguing about how to make things better, whether it's better for both the police department and for the public, um, you're arguing about whether data is valid and who agrees with what. And so my, my tendency is to, to think that uh, this push towards transparency is a good thing um, because getting that information out there, having a set of authoritative data that people can trust gives you a basis to start out with. And in fact, I would actually broaden that in some ways to a discussion of body cameras. I mean, so body cameras started with a focus on evidence, but then one of the big changes is that you know, most of us end up with our own camera that we carry around in our pocket. And so one of the things that is frustrating for some police organizations is that a, a citizen's body camera footage, perhaps edited, perhaps removing all the context of an interaction with police, can go up on the internet perhaps across the country and suddenly change the whole local conversation about what's going on in police. And so the notion of body cameras not as evidence but transparency becomes a discussion of you know, how can we sort of provide more context? How can we provide more authoritative data to show that, well, that person's video left out the three minutes of you know, really important activities that happened before that use of force or before that, that uh, sort of interaction between a policeman and the public. And so I, changes like this, um, whether it's technology that we can carry around, whether it's crowdsourcing of data, I think is going to gradually push us to sort of revise the way we think about you know, what needs to be kept um, sort of within a department or within government and what needs to be released to be able to have a more educated policy debate about these issues. Do you think there have been prior pushes, obviously? It, it's, you know, the bills that are currently sitting in the state legislature, it's not the first time that some of these ideas have been introduced. Do you think the increased public attention on policing will help lead to greater transparency? Is there a groundswelling of support? Do you think that will be substantial enough to make some of this data more public? Well, as, as anyone who's tried to predict the future, I, I have to say that my crystal ball isn't better than anyone else's. But um, I mean, looking at uh, you know sort of the both the movement within law enforcement and different pieces of law enforcement within different you know sort of communities within the public, it does appear to be a more sustained uh, you know sort of push towards getting data out to be able to authoritatively make the point that you know most interactions between police and the public do not end up in a situation that is YouTube worthy if you will and you know that there are many you know positive interactions which is why we have police departments in the first place um, and so you know I, I, I do think that there uh, you know that the technology trends are not going to go away um, and as long as there are sort of people who are interested in this and there are incidents that you know continue to focus public attention on it I, you know I don't see the pressure going away I think if you look at uh, the LAPD, we're miles ahead of any other large police department in terms of uh, transparency this year. And I think a lot of it has to do with we have, a, we have such a strong civilian oversight commission um, that can push these issues. So if you look at uh, use of force, for example, this year 
in February, we released a, a use of force report on 2015. And that report detailed every use of, every categorical use of force, so every serious use of force um, from officer-involved shootings and the other ones, and broke it down in every way imaginable. Suspects, race, uh, officers' race, um, geographic division that it occurred in, the time it occurred, what weapons uh, the suspects had, if any, the circumstances of, of, of each, uh, each encounter. And uh, so this was, and, and there are many, many other uh, data points. The only other department that has anything close to that, and it probably has about 25% as, uh, as much information as New York City, and it took them, last, their last year's report came out in November. So it took them 11 months and it, and it had maybe a quarter as much information as our report did. Um, and ours came out in February. And, and this was the first year, and we've already had, th there will actually be a supplemental report that will come out um, this coming week that will even uh, get more granular on some of these issues. And then if you look at, um, you know, in terms of our, our investigations on officer-involved shootings and these categorical use of, uses of force, to my knowledge, there's no other department that does what we do. After the, after the case is adjudicated by the police commission, the chief, of police, the chief of police's report, which is a detailed summary that's, um, that's prepared by uh, a division called Force Investigative Division, which again is no other department spends as much resources as we do in, in, um, uh, in investigating these cases. It's a summary, it's a very, very detailed summary of the facts and information regarding uh, the use of force. It has the chief's rationale for the decision, um, and then it has the decision that was ultimately arrived at by the police commission. Um, again, there's no, the only thing that's redacted from that, and that's because of state law, is the officers' names. Uh, but uh, again, there's no other department it, it, um, that I'm aware of that does anything close to what we do in terms of reporting on these cases. Right. Can, can I Although, Yep. I just want to just, if I could, and then, um, I'm sure you'll talk about this too, um, but the specific issue, you know, about transparency, a lot of it focused on use of force, but a lot of the discussion that's going on in states is the actual records of a police officer's disciplinary history and the protections that are afforded in many states, and they vary from state to state, but California in particular. And it's an interesting situation and sort of a quandary that a lot of departments are in so, for example, LAPD, in addition to disclosing a lot of data about uh, officer-involved shootings, has always been able to disclose uh, information about punishments or discipline that was meted out against uh, an individual officer. Uh, <laughs> first of all, if an officer was involved in a shooting, we always release, the, and we still do, um, the names of the officers, usually within 72 hours, provided there's not a threat against the officers or something that could jeopardize their safety, and that's evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis. But after the adjudication, if the police commission comes back and the police commission says it's out of policy, and oftentimes the chief recommends, sometimes recommends it's out of policy, and the chief seeks to discharge the officer, um, everything about that referral for a discharge and whether the officer was discharged cannot be commented on by the chief. And so we're, we have this strange under situation state under state law, yes. Everything that I'm talking about, once again, we comply with state law. <laughs> so, um, but it, it creates this odd situation where we disclose the name of the officers, we go through this process, we disclose this redacted report that um, Kate Mather and her colleagues can very easily tie, oh, this shooting that happened on May 5th, 2016, uh, has been adjudicated, what's the name of the officers? And then the consequences of that, the chief of police can't even talk about. And, and that is, has been a problem. We've always had open, uh, every public employee has a right to, due process right to have a, a hearing on any punishment. LAPD has had those hearings open for over 30 years, but the Supreme Court came with a ruling that said you can't have open hearings, so they have been closed. Um, and so there is, I think there needs to be some uh, adjustment in state law, which actually requires us to disclose the names of people involved in officer-involved shooting, but we have to redact the names once the adjudication's done, and we can't talk about what happened to the officer after they may have been found 
in violation of policy. Peter, can you quickly, because there, there's another topic I want to hit too before we open it up to questions, but can you quickly talk to us about some of those efforts that are going on in the Capitol to make some of the, the change some of these laws and open them up a little bit? Sure. Um, and uh, this is a problem, and I think that this is a problem that community advocates and many in law enforcement agree on. And, and it goes beyond shootings. I mean, if you go and file a complaint about an officer um, and they investigate and adjudicate, you are told uh, the result of that in a single word. That is what departments are required, and that is what they are permitted to tell you, whether it was your complaint was sustained, meaning that there was wrongful action found, or not sustained, or the officer was exonerated. If they are not found to have engaged in wrongful misconduct, you're not told why. If they are, you're not told what happens, what kind of corrective action is taken. And certainly when something happens on the street, like a shooting, the public wants to know what happened in the investigation. And with all due respect to the LAPD, they do go uh, uh, far and above what most departments do to provide transparency within the context of California law. But California is one of the most restrictive states in the country. And there are many states. It's a, it's a really funny political issue. It doesn't cut uh, conservative uh, liberals. So Florida and Texas both have much, and Georgia and Ohio much have, have much more open laws in this regard, where you can just get access to the investigation and see what happened. You don't need the detailed summary because it's all right there. Um, so there is an effort underway um, this year, a bill, uh, SB 1286, by Mark Leno, a California senator, to open up public access to police investigations, findings, and discipline only in a few narrow um, circumstances. So um, serious uses of force um, and uh, basically sustained misconduct. So where there has been a finding of misconduct by an officer, those would come open to the public. Everything else would remain closed. It's still actually much more confidentiality than all other public employees in, in the state of California get. And given the importance of uh, integrity for officers, it, it, it's uh, uh, reasonable to have some public access. And just to kind of get back to a basic level of why this matters, I mean, the president's commission, the task force on uh, 21st century policing, one of their basic recommendations was to use principles of procedural justice to try to build trust between departments and communities. And those principles, I mean, these are research-based principles that go, where the research stretches back 40 years that show that people are more likely to uh, uh, have positive responses to institutions where, that they believe are fundamentally fair, even if their individual action results in, you know, problematic consequences for them, like tickets or arrests, if they believe the process is fair, um, they're more likely to be invested. They're more likely to, um, to participate in that institution by calling police, by uh, even obeying the law. And one of the basic ways that procedural justice tells, research tells us that institutions provide um, an assurance of fairness is by being transparent. It's a pretty common sense, pretty basic to democracy. Um, the decisions made behind closed doors are not trusted by the public as much as those made out in the open. Right. Really quickly, before we turn it over to Q&A, I want to move the discussion from policy-based and technology-based to what actually happens on the street, because I think everyone agrees that that's the most important interaction you can have between a police officer and a member of the community is that face-to-face -face interaction. We've been talking a lot about the use of force, police shootings, um, um, you know, other, other serious types of incidents. There's been a big push nationally, and uh, Commissioner Johnson has really spearheaded it as well for the LAPD, to de-escalate. Maybe you've heard that phrase, de-escalation. The idea is, what can officers do in the moments leading up to a confrontation to make sure they don't have to pull out their gun? Can they use a taser instead? Can they try to talk a person down? It's coming up a lot in the context of how police interact with people who are homeless or maybe mentally ill. Um, I'm hoping that uh, maybe, Matt, you can talk really quickly about why that's so important, a priority for you. And uh, if anybody else wants to chime in on, I think it's, it's something that everybody on this panel can agree to some extent that de-escalation is a good thing to strive for. So I'm hoping we can talk quickly about, you know, why it's important and then how we make sure it moves from a theory to an actual practice. So, Matt, sure. if you want to take it away. Well, I think, you know, deadly use of force is obviously the most serious Thing that a police officer can do. Mm -hmm. uh, they're legally justified to do it, and there are absolutely times where um, there are no other options. Um, but we also know that when they do use a deadly use of force, it's, there, it's the most sort of damaging thing that can happen in terms of the community um, police relationship. 
So anything that we can do, whether it's through technolo technology, through training, through tactics, um, through the tools that we equip our officers with to reduce the number of use of force and particularly deadly use of force is something that we have to strive to do. Now the LAPD has been um, on the forefront. They've been teaching de-escalation for a long time. It's, a, it's, it's an ingrained part of the training. Um, it's an ingrained part of the tactics. Um, what we've tried to do is two things. One, we want to make it also part of the policy. And I think it's important as a statement of our values to have it embedded in our policy that this is what our expectations are of our officers. Now, it will always go back to two things. One, we have to keep our officers safe. They have incredibly difficult jobs, incredibly dangerous jobs. So we're not doing anything that will um, decrease officer safety at all. So we're talking about situations where there's a reasonable opportunity um, for, uh, for them to, uh, to initiate some sort of de-escalation um, uh, technique in a scenario. Um, and then it goes to their training. So we're not, you know, I know that it's, a, it's and I've had lots of, of conversations with our training, uh, the folks that run our training division about it. It's very important to them, and they've been very focused on it. But we're looking at what, what other departments are doing around the country and around the world to train differently around de-escalation. And we're finding some useful, uh, some useful things that, that other, um, other jurisdictions are using. And we're also looking at the tools. Things like, you know, before I started on the commission, which was only eight months ago, whether an officer carried a taser or not was, was, an, was an option. They made that decision when they went out in the field every day whether they wanted to carry one or not. Um, and we didn't have enough tasers for everyone. Well, since then, since that time, the chief uh, issued a directive that every officer would be required to carry a taser. Um, beanbag shotguns are another important tool, and we're evaluating the most effective beanbag uh, shotguns um, uh, that are available out there. And you know, we had, LA had 48 officer-involved shootings last year. It was the, either the most or second most in the country, de depending on whether how Chicago counts on any given day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, we know our numbers are right. Um, uh, there were in. in <laughs> I guess this will be on the podcast. There I'll get go. a letter from the <laughs> Chicago PD. You get a call from the Chicago police chief. Enjoy that. Yeah. Um, uh, there were uh, 40%, I, I believe it's, it's over 40% of our encounters um, that resulted in an officer-involved shooting did not involve the suspect having a gun. Sometimes they were unarmed. Sometimes they had a knife. Many of these instances were, were suicide by cop. Um, and in a lot of these situations, it's, 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 you know, there's a situation, there was a situation in Sherman Oaks where you had a guy on the street on Ventura Boulevard shooting a gun in the air and the police came up on him. That, uh, that resulted in an officer-involved shooting. Turned out he had a, a fake gun, but there was no way for the officers to know that. That is kind of the anomaly. What is much more common is the, is a, the, there will be a 911 call from a family member from a friend saying so-and-so is suicidal. They're cutting themselves, or doing this, or doing that. The, pl the police arrive, and, um, uh, and then the, you know, uh, oftentimes someone will see that as an opportunity to uh, you know, come at the police officer. So we're looking at, we're looking at all of these things as, as a way to, um, uh, to decrease the number of, of, of officer-involved shootings and other categorical uses of force. Brian, how, do you, how, how does a department or an agency take this theory of de-escalation and make sure it actually gets put into practice when an officer, you know, rolls up to a situation in a patrol car. What what's vital for that to happen? Well, I mean, the the, the real vital part of that is training because and and it's training that uh, you know hasn't always been part of police academy curriculums. I mean, we we've done work with uh, departments across the country and you know, sort of got the message of. You know, police departments are bearing a lot of the burden of the de-investment in mental health care mm -hmm. in the United States. And so, you know, many of these, you know, sort of interactions that become a police use That's of force, right. you know, might not have happened if, you know, there had been, you know, care that was more available um, to meet the needs of, of, you know, members of the society with mental health concerns. And, and so from that perspective, you know, we've had, you know, folks from a number of departments who say, well, okay, now... Now this becomes a police problem. 
because the police are where you call when you have a problem where there isn't anyone else to call. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, sort of this role has been given to them without necessarily the training necessary to sort of learn how to interact and read the signals and you know, sort of use de-escalation techniques. Um, and so it's, it's really a, a, a need for uh, a training to, to sort of provide the officers with the, the resources to deal with a, a, a set of situations that they weren't expected to deal with at the beginning. I see a lot of nodding in the audience, um, so maybe it's time to open it up to some questions that you guys have for our panelists. So I think there we go. Good evening. Uh, we do welcome your questions. Uh, I just want to... We have a couple of requests. Uh, one, uh, we ask that you raise your hand, and either myself or my colleague will come around and get to you. Uh, the second uh, is that we ask that you keep your question to one question so that uh, we can hopefully get to everyone who wants to ask a question. So uh, we've got some hands raised here already, so I'm going to go right over here where my... There you go. <laughs> I was, I was wondering how these videos are unbiased, if they're under the control of the officer. I mean, maybe instead of 7,000, get 14,000, one for the officer and one for the perp. <laughs> I, I can actually, I'd like to answer or speak to that a little bit. I mean, I, I think that you have actually hit on, there, there are um, segments of the community, I mean, and not fringe segments, but real segments of communities, particularly affected communities, that have real concerns that that, uh, that video that is in the control of the police officer um, will maybe bias. And I think that that is uh, exacerbated when um, the department's buying a system that allows an officer to review that footage in the field, um, which some systems do. Um, and I think that actually the, the officer review um, uh, hurts that as well. I will say, you know, we have tried our best to outfit uh, civilians with uh, these body cameras, um, the ones that, that come on your phone. By We, we put out uh, uh, an app that helps uh, people record the police. I mean, everybody obviously has a video recorder in their phone, but the, our mobile justice app um, has Know Your Rights training. I slipped in a plug there. <laughs> it's there is the an podcast app for that. Too, yeah. um, so, you know, it has Know Your Rights that uh, help encourage people to film within their legal rights, inform people what their rights are, and also when the uh, uh, video closes, it automatically sends a copy to the ACLU in case the phone is seized or destroyed. But I think one, if I could just address that, one, one, one danger with, with body-worn and sort of the expectations is the over-reliance on one piece of evidence, which is the body-worn. And the reality is, I mean, these are cameras that are on the officer's chest, um, despite being trying to be as stable as possible. It's only going to have a viewpoint of here. It's going to be where they look. Oftentimes when an officer, um, it, it, for those of you familiar with shooting, may not even their body may not even be toward the suspect because they're bladed for their own safety and, and different things. It is one piece of very powerful and important evidence, but it is one viewpoint. The, the New York Times had a recent uh, 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 feature on a website where you could see video from different angles and you had a completely different understanding of what happened, which is why our force investigation division that uh, Commissioner Johnson mentioned, why we spend millions of dollars a year conducting very comprehensive reviews and, and collecting evidence, not just of the officer's video, but bystander's video, surveillance video. We conduct 14 forensic tests on everything from the DNA, clothing, with complete reconstruction, the ballistics, and what's presented to the chief and the police commission is not just the video, but the full picture so they can make a well-informed decision. So all evidence will have some bias to it, whether it's an eyewitness or, or what. But that bias is hopefully uh, minimized when you look at the totality of the circumstances. And that's why it's so important that you, every agency conduct a very thorough investigation at the moment that the, the shooting right after it occurs. I have a question in the middle. Thank you so much for a very enlightening uh, discussion, panel discussion. There is a concept at, at law called the agony of the moment. And what uh, you can uh, probably guess mitigates the situation when someone is in a situation where um, the average normal human being uh, responds in a very... Um, not necessarily aggressive, but um, like instinctive way. 
And it seems to me uh, that perhaps we're asking police and people put in these extreme positions um, to do things that are not really uh, normally responsive. Is there the agony of the moment mitigation with respect to police or are they expected to be trained beyond that? I think when you said the agony at the moment in, in the law, I thought you meant the agony of uh, three years of law school. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, if, if I could just, if I could perhaps, I think what you're getting at is, is, is probably one of the fundamental problems right now in our society, which is the expectation that the police is to deal with all the failures in our society. We live in an armed society. We live in an armed society. Guns is never really part of the discussion when it comes to these issues. But... Um, as Commissioner Johnson alluded to, almost 60% of our officer-involved shootings involve firearms or replica firearms that are virtually indistinguishable. Um, and when confronted with one of those in a split-second circumstance, um, it, it is likely that that's the highest probability that you're going to result in officer-involved shooting. Now, even given that, though, one thing I should mention is that we, um, the LAPD does not shoot every armed person they come encounter, <laughs> they encounter. And, and, but, but when you think about that, that's pretty amazing because they encounter people who are armed and are able to either de-escalate through good tactics or be able to get on top of the person or get a, a, resolve the situation without having to use their firearm thousands of times a year. Um, homelessness. Who has to deal with the issue of homelessness now? It is the police. Um, domestic violence. Mental health. These are all symptoms of a society that has not put the time, effort, and resources where it's really needed. And as a result, the police, who are the last resort, basically, are expected to deal with these very complex social problems. And they, they do their best. We're doing everything we can to do better. But I think that has to be, there has to be some recognition that we cannot arrest ourselves out of the problem of gang violence. We cannot... Um, use 911 to solve all of our mental health issues. We cannot expect police officers to issue citations and arrest people to deal with homelessness. Uh, and that is a big part of the, the need for the, the strong relationships with the community. All right. Uh, we've got another question here in the middle. Thank you again very much. It was excellent. So I have a slightly different question. Uh, I, I assume most of the police officers are trying to do the right thing. I mean, you know, I'm sure there are a few that maybe not. And it's a tough job. And over the last few years, we've had a significant drop in, in serious crime in this country and certainly in Los Angeles. And most recently, statistics I've seen, I think including in the Los Angeles Times, the rate of serious crime is starting to grow again in many cities, Chicago, but here as well. So as we work through things that should be worked through, are there ramifications to how the, on the street, how the police officers are responding to this, all trying to do the right thing? And if so, do you sense that? How do you mitigate that? Because it might lead to the increase, unintended increase in crime. Well, I, I think it, it really points to the issue of how important community and policing relationships are. The, the, the fundamental goals of police departments are to prevent crime and to solve crime. And if you don't have a good relationship with the community, good luck doing either one of those. And I think if you look in our city, we have particular challenges in our city, right? We're, we're a very diverse city. Uh, we're a diverse city in terms of our demographics, but there are far too many places that look like this, right? This is not a particularly diverse room. <laughs> and I talk to a lot of groups around the city, and they're and it's very infrequent that I'm talking to a diverse group. I'm talking to a Hispanic audience. I'm talking to a black audience. I'm talking to uh, a Jewish audience at a synagogue. It's very infrequent that I'm, I'm, I'm talking to a diverse group. Um, we are a very spread out city. So whereas New York City has about 44 officers per 10,000 uh, citizens, we have 25. Chicago has 41. And then if you look at how uh, geographically spread out we are, New York has five times as many officers per square mile than we do. But when you look in, 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 in the Watts Gang Task Force, is probably my favorite organization of every group that I talk to, and that is a, it's a, it's a real partnership in a very historically challenged. Everybody knows about the Watts rise. Everybody knows about Watts. And you look at, you, talk, you alluded to the crime increase. We had a 27 
percent increase in um, in homicides last year. We're up about 15 percent this year. Most of that most of that uh, increase in homicides is concentrated to South LA. About four divisions in South LA. Watts is right in the middle of that. But guess what? In the midst of all that violent increase, that is not happening in Watts because there's a real partnership between the police and the community there that just doesn't really exist in most of the other parts of the city. Now we're doing a lot to try and expand that model to other housing developments throughout the city, to other communities throughout the city, throughout the city. but it, it, is, it is difficult to do because of our, our challenge in, in resources. And when I talk about resources, it's really people. Question in the back. Hi. Um, again, thank you all for, for being here. This is a very interesting talk. Um, so since we're talking about police community relations, I think violence is a very important uh, topic to cover. But considering that we're also in Los Angeles, which has a predominantly large undocumented community, um, I'd like to know, you know, exactly where does the police stand in the relationship with ICE? Um, and you know how close are they to ICE? How distant are they to ICE? And how do they communicate that with the community if they really do want to develop a strong relationship with them in order to help you know solve crime, diminish crime um, in their communities? I, I can mention you know, the LAPD uh, through the policies passed by the, the commission back in the 1970s has always had a policy that it does not make um, stops or encounters on the basis of an immigration violation or to investigate an immigration violation. Um, and, and that's been a, a, a practice that's gone on for, for decades, um, under a lot of criticism, quite frankly, from, from some other uh, groups. Um, with respect to ICE, LAPD has had a longstanding policy not to uh, recognize ICE detainers. And these are orders that were issued by ICE to hold people into custody um, simply based on their request. Um, There's some legal reasons why, but also just the idea that, um, you know, the LAPD and any local, any local police department, Santa Monica, it doesn't matter, has to have a relationship with its community, especially those who are victims. And unfortunately, those who are undocumented um, tend to be victimized quite a bit because of that status. And having that trust with that community to be able to come forward when they're victimized to be able to come forward when they are witnesses to crime is essential to keep our community safe. So LA, I think, long before this was even an issue, has had some very progressive approaches to that issue um, and that exist uh, even till today. All right, we've got a question here in the back. Hi, yes, thank you. What is the percentage of officers who are hired from the neighborhood in which they will work. In other words, they know the neighbors because they live there. Depends on what the cost of living is that year. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, it's okay. Sure. You, uh, um, uh, this is an issue that we talk a lot about. Recruitment is a huge issue and, and personnel and the demographics of the department. Certainly. And, and it, it has been a bigger problem. So, right around the time of the Rodney King incident and certainly leading up to the riots, this was a major issue. Um, not having police officers who uh, came from the communities, but also uh, reflected the communities of Los Angeles. Uh, that has changed quite a bit. There were, and there were some programs, especially after the riots, to incentivize police officers to live in the communities in which they police, uh, uh, discounts on loans and those types of things. The challenge in Los Angeles is um, some places are just too expensive for police officers to live in, in some places are sometimes too dangerous for them to live in. And especially, there, there is a concern when a police officer is patrolling an area and they just arrested somebody and they get released from jail the next day and they see you out mowing your lawn. That's not something that makes most police officers feel comfortable. However, the, the, the good news about the department is it's, it's makeup, uh, it, it much better reflects the ethnicities, the religions, the, the culture of Los Angeles much better. I, I say it's, a, it's actually a majority-minority department. The city is approximately 40% uh, Hispanic, Latino. Um, LAPD is about 40%. Uh, the city's population of African Americans, I believe, is about 10%. Nine, 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 ten percent. Ten percent. The department's uh, 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 
workforce is about 11%. And it changes because people coming in and leaving. Um, the one area we could do better is actually with women. Um, having more female police officers, that tends to fluctuate, but that's really a, a different issue uh, that we, we do a lot of aggressive recruitment in those areas. Um, we need to do better because it, it's hard to keep these things going, but the LAPD of today is not the same LAPD of before, and I think that has helped. That diversity has become a major strength for the department, not just because it, it helps with the relationship with the community, but you get that diversity of experience, that diversity of understanding, and that diversity of thought that helps protect the community better. One of, the, one of the lessons from the consent decree period where there was a lot of collection of data about stops uh, at the time that the demographics of the department were changing were, was that that did not have the profound effect on racial disparities in, in who was stopped, who was searched, who was passed out of a car that, that uh, you might have expected. Uh, well, <laughs> there, there's the issue of, you know, the racial disparity in, in, in the studies that we've done that basically have shown inconclusive data on whether they were are biased in the stops under the consent decree. But but I agree with you to the point that I think there was an expectation, well, if you diversify, then a lot of these issues would disappear. That certainly hmm. um, is not going to be the case. There are still going to be issues that may persist in finding out why. But I do think um, being inside the LAPD, only for the last couple of years, but, uh, you know, People have different perspectives. They understand cultures. My family were immigrants uh, from uh, Pakistan and India. My family is Muslim American. I've worked in the counterterrorism, homeland security field, law enforcement, and I've seen how people have benefited and have come to me just to understand my perspective, seeing something, saying, you know, we got that's not what they're saying. It's a little different. And having people in the department now, whether it's language skills or just experiences, and be able to do that helps build much stronger connections with people in the community and helps us be smarter in the way we deal with crime. Yeah. We have time for one last audience question, uh, but I know our speakers will be staying afterwards to answer any additional questions. Uh, good evening. Thank you very much for being here. I want to thank all of you for, for what, you, what you're doing and what you have done. Um, my name is Ed Story. I'm an old infantry officer. And as an infantry officer, I've gotten shot at a lot of times. Uh, and I'm still here. Uh, and uh, we were taught. Uh, and this is following up on some of the things that Brian said, we were taught to get out of the way. We were taught to find defilade. We were taught to take cover. Uh, we were taught basically not to get shot. Uh, and uh, that came in very handy. Um, <laughs> we, basically, from what I have read and what I have seen, which is granted far less than any of you gentlemen and ladies have, have seen, that there are third-party trainers out there that are going around saying, shoot first and write the report later. Uh, the 20-foot rule, you know, the sort of 20-foot rule, you know, all of this uh, tends to, in my perception, as just one citizen, uh, give the officer the sense that he not only has the right but maybe he ought to pull his gun. So my question is, would you comment on that? Brian uh, commented on training. In my perception, training is the key to the whole thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say training is very important again. Yes, no, um, the uh, sources of training uh, in for criminal justice from outside of the community um, to put it somewhat politically, very greatly in quality. Um, I post 9/11. Uh, some folks of us at, at Rand were looking at counterterrorism-related training that was provided by outside entities, um, you know, as part of our research. And, and to say that it varied greatly in quality was probably a, 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 a very generous statement. But the same thing can be said for training from from other sources as well. I mean, and part of this gets to. Um, you know the the length and the content of police academies. Uh, you know some police academies are quite short for the amount of um, both knowledge and intuition and understanding and tactics and techniques and and skill that you want to you know sort of instantiate a new police officer with. 
And and so uh, so absolutely, I'm I'm uh, I, I would agree that there are certainly training needs here, and uh, many of the external sources are probably not the place that we want to go to to get them. And and the one benefit that I've seen working with LAPD is LAPD is known for its tactical excellence throughout the the, the world. Uh, and it, I always joke about this: if you really want to hurt an LAPD officer, don't tell them that they're not very bright. Don't tell them that you know. Um, they, they, they don't look good, just say, you know what, your tactics suck, okay? <laughs> and it's basically ripping out their heart and stomping on it, and that's because um, they pride themselves on tactical, tactical excellence, and a large part of that is their own protection, officer safety, and the safety of the public. And everything that they do is dictated by that. That's why they, we emphasize distance plus cover equals time, the ability to get away from somebody who has a knife or a and then get cover from that is time. You referenced the 20-foot rule or the 21-foot rule, for those who don't know. It was a common um, idea in law enforcement that some departments still subscribe to, the LAPD does not, which is somebody can close the distance from 21 feet to you within a very short period of time. Therefore, that's the appropriate time where you must shoot them. We do not do that. In fact, when we review cases, that is not a... A rule, but unfortunately, some departments still do that in large part because they don't have the data to look at it. They don't keep up to date on what's really going on in the rest of the community. Um, but we do, and we learn, and we review every single case to try to see what did we get wrong, what could we do better, and in some cases, that has an influence on other departments, which I think is a positive impact. Thank you. Please, everybody, join me in thanking the panel for a really interesting and informative discussion. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.